Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our hosts, Dr. Lynn Coick and Serene Musselman, are joined by Dr. Brittany Kim. Brittany holds a PhD from Wheaton College, and she is an adjunct professor of Old Testament at North Park Theological Seminary and Northeastern Seminary. Brittany is a director of Every Voice, an organization that seeks to support greater ethnic diversity in theological education, a spiritual director, a pastor's wife, and a mother of three. Hi, Brittany. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. You know, we go back a little ways, both of us at Wheaton College, where Mm -hmm. you did your PhD, and then randomly... A week or two ago, I met your sister, who is a student at Northern Seminary. So I don't know if it's like circle of life stuff here or what, but it was so fun to meet her. I directed her to you. Well, thank you. others. Well, and we're just thrilled that she's here with us at Northern. So that's a great blessing. And it's a great blessing for me to talk with you because you're doing so many exciting and fun things. You have focused a lot recently on ethnic diversity. And you talk about how you've experienced that also in your own life. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about how you became passionate about kingdom diversity? Yeah. Well, I grew up in what I would consider a pretty colorblind world. My family is Caucasian American, and I don't really think I had a grid for racial or ethnic issues growing up. But that changed when I was in college and I started dating my now husband, who's Korean-American. And as I started to learn more about his world and his experience, I just realized that being colorblind actually means seeing the world and everyone through your own cultural lens. And so then you interpret their words and actions through your cultural paradigms. And sometimes that means you can misinterpret what they're doing or saying. And it also means that you don't recognize important aspects of who they are because our culture does form an important part of our identity. And so as my relationship with my now husband developed and as I began especially interacting with his parents who are Korean immigrants, I realized that I needed to learn more about their cultural context to understand them better and to recognize where they were coming from in our interactions. And then over time, as I started to see differences between Korean culture and my American culture, it slowly has helped me to decenter my American culture, you know, to recognize that things that I grew up taking for granted, like individualism, are not the only way of seeing things and sometimes not the best way. Yeah. And so it's helped me to kind of see just how I might, how there might be blind spots for me culturally, and to think about how I might learn and grow from the riches of Korean culture. So one of the things I'm thinking about right now, as my in-laws are getting older, is what does it mean to honor aging parents in a more communal culture? And what is my role in that? And then also, how might that help me understand what the Bible has to say about honoring parents? I mean, I think as we read that as Americans, we tend to think of kids honoring their parents, you know, not disobeying or rebelling. We can use that as a weapon (laughs) to pound them over the head. Obey your parents. But the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, was written to heads of households about 
honoring their parents when they were adults. And so what might that look like for me as an American daughter-in-law of Korean immigrants? And what did that look like in the biblical world? You mentioned the reality that you're facing with aging parents, but I wonder if there's some other common misunderstandings about just the idea of diversity that you come across both in your work as an academic and then also in your ministry. Yeah, well, I think in the academy, there's sometimes an assumption that the dominant stream of white Euro-American interpretation is objective. And then anything else is contextual. So, you know, there's interpretation, exegesis, that's objective. That's the way things have been done for a long time by white Euro-American scholars, predominantly male scholars. And then there's Latino interpretation and Asian American theology and all these other things. And so the effect of that can be, not only are these voices marginalized, but they can be viewed as sort of extra, like delving into that area can be seen as something extra for people who are interested in that. But, you know, the real meat is found in this stream of objective interpretation and theology. And I mean, I think the biggest problem with that is that we fail to recognize that all interpretation and all theology is contextual. We are all coming to the Bible from our particular cultural lenses. I mean, historical criticism is so influenced by enlightenment rationally. And so, so we can see the way that we interpret as obvious. I mean, just in, in a similar way to how I would see certain aspects of my culture, like individualism, as the way of approaching the world, we can do the same thing with our biblical interpretation and fail to recognize those blind spots. And so when we start to see that diversity isn't, you know, like, like doing diversity <laughs> isn't an extra thing, but it's the way that we can start to, to, to recognize how we have maybe seen some things wrongly is a way that we can understand our blind spots by encountering more diverse voices. And that can really, it becomes central and an important way of how we learn and grow in our understanding of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's some Old Testament and New Testament principles that are going on here. You're an Old Testament prof, me mm -hmm. a New Testament prof. But I feel like the conversation often around this topic of diversity becomes very quickly politicized. So how would you, what might be some texts or some passages in the mm -hmm. Old Testament where you would say, no, that this is really God's, diversity is God's vision yeah. for how the church, how the people of God should live. Yeah, well, I think it's there from the beginning. I mean, you look at the book of Genesis, and it starts not with Israel, but with God's creation of the whole cosmos, heavens and earth. And you see his concern for the whole world. The, the table of nations in Genesis 10 shows that God cares about all nations. And then when God does call Abraham, he doesn't call Abraham for his own sake or just for the sake of his descendants. But he calls him in order to have a mission to bring blessing to all nations. And so from the beginning, that was God's aim. And then we see the end of the story in Revelation is people from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping together. 
And then even when the Old Testament is focusing primarily on Israel, we see lots of glimpses of how God was acting in other people's lives. Um, so, you know, from Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who is a Canaanite priest king, but seems to be a worshiper of the same God as Abraham. You have people like Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, and Ruth, Moabitess, who are held up as examples of faith and faithfulness. And there's ethnic diversity within Israel as well. So Abraham's great-grandson Joseph married the daughter of an Egyptian priest. And so his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who become heads of two of the tribes of Israel, are half Egyptian. And when Israel goes up from Egypt at the Exodus, it says that there was a mixed multitude with them. So always other people were included with Israel. And then you have some glimpses in the prophets that are really interesting. Like Amos 9-7 compares God bringing the Philistines and the Arameans into their lands to the Exodus from Egypt. So maybe God had dealings with these other nations that we don't know about. And then Isaiah 19, 24 through 25, puts two of Israel's greatest enemies, Egypt and Assyria, next to Israel as one of God's peoples. So we can see that God's heart has always been that the nations would come to him. And then when we have visions like in Isaiah of the nations streaming to Jerusalem to worship God, they're bringing their riches, the best of their culture, to worship God together with Israel. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. And you mentioned Isaiah a couple of times at the end, and that's your area you did your dissertation on. Can we stay for a minute in Isaiah? Could you help readers today? Like, how would we get the most out of Isaiah? And I'm confessing to you that I read it, and I love you know, some of the passages, just soaring images that are wonderful to meditate on. And then there's other times where I am just lost in the forest. So yeah. <laughs> can you help me understand Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah is a big book. And in some places, the prophetic books can just feel like a mishmash of oracles that we don't know what to do with. And so it's hard to get the lay of the land. So I think it's really helpful in Isaiah to look at the framing chapters. In Isaiah 1, we have God calling Israel his rebellious children, and he talks about some of the sins that they're committing, especially in the realm of injustice and oppression. They're coming to him to worship, but their hands are full of blood, not the blood of the animal sacrifices, but the blood of the people that they're oppressing. And so God is calling them to repent and saying, you have a choice before you. If you repent, then I will bless you and you'll eat the good of the land. But if you don't repent, you're going to be eaten by your enemies. And there's this image of a purifying judgment, a judgment like a fire that's going to test. It's going to burn up everything that is not of God. But the, those who are faithful to God will persist, the faithful remnant. And so you see this progression then through the whole book, which the first 39 chapters are focused on the situation of Israel in the 8th century during the Assyrian crisis. And then chapters 40 to 66 seem to be addressing a later generation of the people who were in Babylonian exile after the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem because of the people's sins. They did not repent. So they ended up facing that purifying judgment of exile. But then chapters 40 to 55 talk about how God's going to restore them from exile. 
And then chapters 56 to 66 seem to be addressing the situation of those who have returned from exile, calling them to, again, they're still rebelling against God, they're still sinning, but calling them to turn to God. And then by the end of the book, you see there's this hard division now that some of the Israelites have become God's servants and are following him, and others have persisted in their rebellion, and there's judgment for the rebels, but, but life, abundant life for those who choose to serve God. What are your, that's so helpful, that just to give that big framework, are, what are the new projects? Are you still working in Isaiah, or do you have a new project that you're working on now? I just finished an essay on Isaiah, I've been focusing a lot on contextual reading, but I haven't done much of that myself. And so I wrote an essay on Isaiah 58, the passage about how true fasting looks like liberation and hospitality, not just abstaining from food. And I wrote that essay thinking about how does this speak to a modern audience of white middle-class American Christians? And then I was thinking about what are some of the cultural aspects of American life, especially white middle-class American life, that might make it difficult for us to hear some things from the text. So I talked about individualism, and I talked about how our socioeconomic segregation makes it that sometimes we don't encounter people who are in need face-to-face, -face, and that there's something in the text that's important about the interaction that happens, I think, when you come face-to-face -face with people, and you are both, I think, transformed in the encounter. And then I talked a bit about our pace of life. The end of the passage talks about the Sabbath, the importance of the Sabbath. And I think sometimes that's a hard concept for us as Americans, and we can look at the New Testament and say, well, you know, the Pharisees condemned Jesus for not keeping the Sabbath, so we don't need to keep it either. <laughs> and I think we can kind of miss the heart of what the purpose of the Sabbath was. So that's one thing. But actually, most of my attention right now is going to Genesis because I'm writing some commentary on Genesis for a Bible study curriculum. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Brittany, in addition to your recent work in Isaiah and Genesis, you've also been working on another project, which I am excited to hear more about. You created with your friend and Old Testament colleague, Charlie Trim, a lengthy bibliography of Old Testament works that have been written by persons of color. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that project and what motivated the effort to create this bibliography. Yeah. Well, I think our awareness of how few works by scholars of color we knew about started when Charlie and I co-wrote a book on Old Testament theology. So we were looking, it's an introduction to Old Testament theology, just sort of trying to give people the lay of the land and especially focusing on works that have been written in the last 30 years, although we talk about some older works as well that have an enduring influence. But as we were doing that, we realized that almost all of the Old Testament theologies that we found had been written by white men. And the few that we did find that were written by women and scholars of color brought such important, interesting perspectives to the conversation. And we really were just feeling like there's such a need for more of this, for more works in this field by women and scholars of color. And so that, that kind of turned us on to that problem that there aren't enough 
works and we're not aware of them in our white American context. And then in the wake of George Floyd, I think we, we were thinking about, you know, what kinds of acts of racial justice can we participate in our context? And so Charlie had the idea to create a bibliography of work by Black Old Testament scholars. And so then we started working on that together and it grew into something much bigger than we had expected. There were some scholars we were aware of and many that we were not, both in North America, few in Europe, and then many in Africa that we had not encountered before. And so as we were doing that work, we, it was exciting to see all of these riches that we uncovered, and we decided to continue that by creating bibliographies for other scholars of color. And we're now in the process of turning those into a searchable database. And so hopefully we'll be launching that soon. We're very far in that process. And our hope is that we can help people who may not know how do I find diverse voices, we're going to provide an easy way so that you can search for sources by scholars of color on a particular topic that you're teaching or writing about. And we're even including demographic information as much as we can find <laughs> so that you can filter by that. You can say, well, what do scholars in the Middle East have to say about land? Or, you know, are there any ways that you want to look at it? Like, what are the particular perspectives that you're looking for? I think this is going to be such a valuable and needed resource. I'm personally excited for it. I'm on a team at my church that collaboratively researches and writes the messages throughout the year. And I know this has been a topic of conversation for us and I'm sure for other church leaders. And so thank you for your efforts along with Charlie to put this together. How will people be able to find this resource when it's available? So it'll be on our website. Our Every Voice website is everyvoicekingdomdiversity.org. And there's a database page up already. Right now it just has our bibliographies, but we'll replace that with the database when we complete that. That's wonderful. And so you just mentioned Every Voice. So this is also something that you have been helping to create, Every Voice Kingdom Diversity Group. So I also want to take just a moment to talk about that as well. So this is a group that you've helped create with the amazing scholars as fellows of the group. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what Every Voice Kingdom Diversity Group is, what the efforts are why you feel like it's important, maybe how those of us who are in the church, lay leaders in the church can benefit from it. So could you just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit more about this effort? Yeah. So as we were doing the bibliography work initially, uh, we one of the things we were thinking about is how few of these scholars of color are in our evangelical institutions and how few students of color a lot of times are in our schools. And so we were thinking, trying to think about, okay, what are the barriers here and how can we start to, you know, we can't fix the problem overnight, but how can we start to move the ball in the right direction? So we gathered together a team of scholars to talk about these issues and came up with a lot of ideas about why we have this problem and about particular initiatives that we could pursue to address it. But... Um, but then we realized we needed some sort of a, an identity. We needed a, an, an actual institution that could do all of this. So then we created Every Voice as a nonprofit. 
And so we're doing work in some different areas. So the bibliographic work is a big part of that. We're also really concerned about helping professors who are working in theological education to create more inclusive learning environments where students from all backgrounds feel like they are part of the learning community and are valued for the perspectives they bring. So we have some resources on inclusive pedagogies. And then we're also trying to connect students. So especially we want to provide support networks for ethnic minority students, especially within the U.S., but then also connecting with majority world students. Um, but then we want multicultural community that involves majority culture student, students as well. So, so white American students. And so we have a student group that is starting to develop some programs. They had a, a meeting, a Zoom meeting over the summer, and they're going to do some things this year. So that's some of it. We also, we do have a concern to connect the academy and the church. And so we had some conversations about that with some African-American pastors and some other leaders, academic leaders, this, I guess it was spring or winter or spring. And out of that, we did a couple of discussion groups over the summer where we had ministry leaders and academics from diverse backgrounds coming together to discuss issues of importance for the church. And our hope was that as, as we each bring our perspectives to the table, we can learn from each other. So we had one group talking about diversity, doing a book study, and then another group talking about polarization in the church and the culture. And that was really, we had some really wonderful conversations. We don't yet have anything any future conversations or discussion groups scheduled, but when that, when we bring that back next time around, that would be a good place for lay leaders to get involved too, to build connections and to just learn from other people. This is all so exciting. I can't wait to hear more about the journey ahead. It almost seems like you're just getting started, and I can't wait to see what comes out of these conversations. I have to say I totally relate to trying to remember whether it was winter or spring here in the Chicagoland area. <laughs> Those seasons just blend together, so totally get that. I love this chance to learn from each other and also just to hear what is close to our heart as we encounter Scripture, and you've spent a lot of time in Scripture reading and researching and teaching. We talk a lot about the stories of women in scripture on this podcast. So I kind of have to ask before we end our conversation, do you have a favorite female biblical character? And share a little bit with us, if you do, about why. Yeah, I do. At the moment, the female biblical character that I find most compelling is Hagar. And it's interesting, we don't really know much about her you know, what was she like? I, I, we don't really get anything about her character. We learn about a conflict with Sarah, where Sarah at least thinks that Hagar is to blame. Um, but we only have Sarah's perspective on that. So we know very little about Hagar herself, but I think she's so significant for what she represents. And it's just so beautiful to me that the Old Testament doesn't have to include so much about her, right? She's peripheral to the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant through Isaac. But you have these two encounters of God meeting with Hagar in the wilderness. And she's the first person in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord appears to. She's the only person who said to name God. And she's, you know, the sort of the least likely person that you would think that God would appear to because she's, she's not an Israelite, she's an Egyptian, she's a woman, and she's a slave. 
And yet God hears her and he cares for her. And he even gives her promises that are very similar to the promises he gives to Abraham. And I think also what's really interesting is that she prefigures Israel's story. So we have this reverse exodus motif happening where God rescues the Egyptian woman from oppressive slavery at the hands of Israelite masters. And then he brings her into the wilderness where he meets with her and he cares for her. And so you see that in some ways she is like a microcosm of Israel. Well, that is so fascinating. This is from Genesis 21 and her story there. Yeah, I've I uh, loved that image of the reverse reverse exodus that way. We do get a sense of God's heart in this. Can you reflect a little bit on how we are to understand Abraham and Sarah in this, who are supposed to be the good guys of yeah. the story? How do we, you know, because I think I would love to be the Hagar character here, right? You know, we're leaning on God. I mean, I wouldn't love to have her experience, but the idea of being, you know, close to God and being rescued by God, that's wonderful. But I think probably most of my life has actually been in the Abraham, Sarah shoes, right? Yeah. I think yeah. that that's kind of been my place. What do I need to take away from this story with that? Yeah, well, I think sometimes in the church, we have a tendency to make the biblical heroes into, you know, we, we think everything that they do must be right because they're the hero of the story. And what we see in Abraham's life is that his journey of faith is really up and down. And he, you know, he's learning to do righteousness and justice, but it's slow in coming sometimes. And the way that they, that Abraham and Sarah treat Hagar does not reflect God's desire for how people should treat one another. And I, and it's interesting. So some scholars, especially a couple of womanist scholars that I read, black feminist scholars, have a really hard time with the fact that in Genesis 16, when Hagar runs away from Sarah's mistreatment, God calls her to go back and to submit to Sarah. And so they say, why would God call her to do that? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things to keep in mind. For one thing, she's pregnant and, you know, mort infant mortality rates in the ancient world were pretty high. So she might not have much chance of her and the baby surviving childbirth in the wilderness at that point. But also the word that is used there for when he tells her to submit to her mistress, it's a different form of the same verb that's used in the prior chapter in Genesis 15, where God tells Abraham that his descendants will be oppressed in Egypt for 400 years. And I've been thinking a lot about the character formation of suffering and how there are a lot of laws later in the Old Testament where God says, you know, do not mistreat the foreigner. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Think back on your experience of being mistreated by foreigners and don't do the same thing. And I think about how Abraham and Sarah hadn't had that experience at that point. They didn't consider what it, was, what it would be like to be mistreated by a foreigner. And so that didn't influence the way that they treated Hagar. And so there's, you know, there's learning and growth that happens throughout Abraham's story and then also throughout Israel's story later. Oh, that is so good. Yeah, thank you. 
That's a, it's a powerful word. It, Hagar is a figure for me that that is sobering, right? Mm-hmm. Like her experience and all of that is sobering to me because I feel like society has given me the kind of power that Abraham and Sarah had. Yeah, And so it's, yeah, it, I've felt like in a good way that her story, Hagar's story is a challenge in a good way. And I, I love how you're putting that in the context of character formation for Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, that is so good. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, wow, we've gone through so fast. <laughs> so much great, great learning, Brittany. It's just, I'm so thankful that you came on the Alabaster Jar to share with us all the initiatives that you're doing and the work that you're doing in Isaiah and also in Genesis. So thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you again. You've been listening to an episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. For more conversations like this one, subscribe and join us here each Tuesday when we upload a brand new episode. If you enjoyed this week's conversation with Dr. Brittany Kim, check out the episode description for links to her work with Every Voice, a center for kingdom diversity and Christian theological education.